If you could turn in your Bibles, actually you don't have to turn, I'm going to read through several passages, but if you'd like you can turn there. Uh, Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, and I assure you I'm going to be speaking of 1 Peter lest you think that's what we're opening to and I'm prepared the wrong message, uh, but this, this applies. Acts chapter 20, and this was Paul speaking, verse 29. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. First John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Galatians chapter 1. Verse 6, starting in verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the gospel or in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Cursed by God. And we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. A reminder that every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And last, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools. 
and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like in, or corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. That, that, that picture there of God saying, fine, that's, if you want to really do this, I'm going to allow it. Wonderful, beautiful parts of the scripture, right? These are happy passages in the Bible. Uh, but I read them for a reason. Let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity we have this morning to open your word, to study it. And we pray that this morning your words would be spoken. You would open the hearts of everyone here, myself included, to hear what you would have us to take away and hear from this, Lord, that the body of Christ would be edified this morning, that your word would be magnified and your name glorified. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of your son that we remembered this morning in the breaking of bread, something that we did not deserve, Lord, and I pray that we never take for granted. And we thank you for the love that will not let us go. And Lord, the only thing we can say this morning is thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I think you got to love Peter. We've been studying him. Either when we, when we studied through 1 Peter and now 2 Peter, uh, or we studied Acts before that, uh, which is the history of the early church. And then I would venture, I guess, to say that most people here have read the Gospels. And if you haven't, I strongly encourage you to do so. Uh, but we learn a lot about Peter, uh, things that I think are uh, things that endear us or endear him to us. Uh, one, he was a common man, if you will, and I don't mean that in a as an insult to Peter. Uh, but he was not a, a wealthy man. He was not a, a, a powerful man, at least in the worldly secular sense. Uh, he was a fisherman. He was a, a man who woke up in the morning, tended his nets, brought them out into the boat early in the morning, sailed out into the Sea of Galilee, dropped his nets in, worked hard. If you've never, you've never fished, especially fish bulk, and I haven't. I've talked to a few people who have. It's, it's not easy work. It's hard work. And, and then at the end of the day, when you bring your catch back, you have to sell it. You have to make a living and support a family. And, and that, was, that was Peter. He was a fisherman before Jesus called him. And we get a picture in the Gospels of, of him being a little bit headstrong, a little bit impulsive. Uh, someone who did things big, he never did anything half halfway. Now, he was the disciple that when Jesus said, uh, you will deny me, you, you, will, you will fall away from me. He said, I'm never going to do that, Lord. He was the first one that jumped in and he said, I'm not going to do that. And we know what happened. Jesus said, no, you will. Before the cock crows in the morning, you'll deny me three times. And this man, when he was called by God, he, he spent three years with Christ. And just think about that, that the ministry 
that he observed. He got to see Christ's miracles. He got to, to, to hear Christ teach. Uh, and he was able to speak to Christ in, in many respects, you would say, in a one-on-one setting. It's just an amazing uh, ability to spend time, three years with Christ, and, and, and observe his ministry. And he's imperfect. This is what we talked about just briefly. Uh, he did deny the Lord three times. Um, in a very public way in the Gospels, that's recorded, and we know. And there was redemption there. Um, and we saw Christ die. And I'd imagine that in the interim, in the time period between Christ's death and when he returned and, and revealed himself to them again uh, in, the, in the upper room, that there was some doubt there, I would imagine. And then Christ uh, returns and he's revealed to them uh, twice, and the third time that it's revealed to, to Peter and several of the other disciples, they were out fishing in the morning, and, and Jesus is on the beach. And they come in from an unsuccessful night of fishing, and the Lord tells them to cast their nets on the other side. And they do so, and they pull up a, a large catch. And Peter recognizes who that is. And Peter being Peter, does he wait for the boat? No. He jumps in, and he swims to his Lord. And that beautiful exchange between Jesus Christ and him happens on the beach there where Jesus says three times, alluding back to the fact that he denied him three times. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. And he saw Christ ascend into heaven. All of these things are, are, I'm I'm stressing what he saw and what he heard. He was an eyewitness uh, to all of this and and heard the great charge, uh, the great commission to go and make disciples. And then Jesus left behind the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit descended on, on the disciples, Peter himself was used powerfully at Pentecost, preaching in Jerusalem and thousands were saved. And that was the beginning of the church. And we studied that in Acts. And now you've got to figure out what to do. You know, they followed Jesus for three years. And then they saw him ascend into heaven. They were given this charge. And they, they start to fulfill that. Now we have to figure out what to do after that. Now you're saved. What, what, what's next? How then shall we live? And so they start this, this church, the early church. And they devote themselves to four things. One of which is the apostles' teaching. Peter was an apostle, instrumental in the foundation of the, of the church in Jerusalem, which spread. And at this point in his life, if we uh, date this to shortly before his death uh, in the 60s, AD 60s, uh, this is the end of his life, that he is writing this letter to the church that has expanded beyond Jerusalem. And it got me thinking. So so Second Peter, and First Peter too, but Second Peter, I was written after First Peter, at least chronologically we would say it probably was because it's the second one. This was written shortly before his death. And I would argue that he probably knew that his time was approaching. And so he wrote this letter to the church which was very important to him for obvious reasons. And I thought, like, well, if I knew I was going to die with any degree of certainty in the next, let's put a short time on it, week, 
what kinds of things would I write? What kinds of things would I put in? A, because this, first of all, I would do that. I would write a letter. I'd want something to endure beyond my time here, whether it's recording a voicemail because we have these things called cell phones or email or something that, that, that would endure beyond my death, that I would write to people that I care about, my wife, my children. What kinds of things would I put in that letter? Would it be frivolous, goofy things? Or would it be things that I found incredibly important? Like these are things that you need to remember and recall as you go through life. I'd probably put something in there telling them that this, this is how you improve, especially if you think, think about myself as a man and, and my son as a young man. How can you become a good man? This is what you need to do. And put, I'd put warnings in there. This is what you need to watch out for. These are the type of people you don't want to be around. These are the influences you want to avoid. And Peter, I would say, inspired by the Holy Spirit, did that in, in Second Peter. And Peter really focused a lot on the preeminence of the Word, the Word of God. Uh, we studied that in the end of chapter 1. In the section of my Bible titled the, the Trustworthy Prophetic Word, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The word is important. It's important to Peter. And these books of the Bible are not from the prophet's own interpretation, but they were moved by the Holy Spirit to record these things. And that word is important. You know, one of my last jobs in the active duty army, uh, I was a, a section lead in a a theater ground intelligence center, which is a, a T-SCIF, and T-SCIF stands for Top Secret Sensitive Compartmentalized Information Facility. And you can see why we say T-SCIF instead of all of those words. Uh, but I was a section lead, and our intelligence brigade fell under CENTCOM. CENTCOM is responsible for the Middle East, uh, really all of the areas of conflict in the last 20 years. That's what CENTCOM owns. And uh, my section was uh, the Arabian Peninsula and the Levant. And, and we worked in the fusion cell. The fusion cell is, is uh, we take all of the information from the specific intelligence disciplines. And I'm not going to go into what those are, but the point is, is they all have their own piece of the pie. And a fusion section would take all of that and, and turn it into a cohesive assessment, if you will. And we used to do assessments on countries, entire countries. And so I was either responsible for writing them or for approving them, tweaking them, and then I had to go defend my assessment to this crusty old retired CW3 or 4 uh, in the Army. He'd been doing 
analysis and assessment probably longer than I had been alive at that point in my life. And he would fixate on individual words in your assessment. Not the, not the overarching theme or the thought, but like, I don't like this word you used here, Sean. Or Captain Fullen at the time. And I'd have to defend the use of that particular word. And, and something he said stuck with me. And I guarantee you, my wife will smile at this because of reasons that are separate from this. But I, he used to say, words mean things, sir. Words mean things. That stuck with me because it's true. I'm, I'm a bit of a, of a stickler and word guy. But I think it is important. It conveys things. And Peter would say that, that, that this, this means things. Words mean things. The Word of God means things. And it is important that we use it and correctly divide it properly. And he spends an entire chapter right after that passage in Second Peter and I think there's probably going to be some, some bleed between my message, Evan's message next week, and the message that was spoken last week. Because really this entire chapter is devoted to false teachers. False teachers. You know, I like, I like to write, and you may not know this about me, I like to write music using secular songs. Popular tunes. I often get myself in trouble with music because I I listen to the music before I listen to the words. And some people are like that and some people are not. I think the the music aspect of it is designed to tug on your emotional heartstrings, if you will. Uh, And I'll get drawn into a song before I listen to it. And then you listen to the lyrics and you go, I cannot like this song. I can't listen to this around my kids. And so there have, been, there have been times, and this has happened before, I, I, that one of my favorite tunes is Hallelujah. It was written by Leonard Cohen. Uh, and I, if I recall correctly, his express purpose in writing that song was to take back, which is an incorrect statement, the word Hallelujah from Christians, because it's not, not for Christians only. Well, I'd say it is. And that song, if you, if you don't listen to it with a discerning ear, he says... Certain things. He's, he's a non-practicing Jew, if I remember correctly. Um, but he says things that would probably, you know, if I'm not listening close. I mean, he talks about David, and there's there's allegory, Christian allegory in that song, but it's not a good song. But man, the music is beautiful. And so I, I like I like when people will take music like that and they'll rewrite it. There's a Christmas version of that song that, that exists out there that's absolutely beautiful. Uh, if, you, if you haven't heard it and you want the link to it, I will happily share that song with you. It is, it is beautiful. Um, and and I, have, I think I've actually covered here a couple times, um, and I'm not the one who came up with this, but I really like it. Man of Sorrows works really well with that too, and you just have to add a verse. Um, and I've, I've written a Christmas song for Sounds of Silence. Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend. Kind of a depressing song, but I, I, I wrote a Christmas version of that. Um, and I like I like to do that. I recently realized you can you can add um, there's a lot of hymns that work with uh, House of the Rising Sun. Not a great song, not a great song at all. But the tune, I like the tune, and and, and a lot of hymns that the the meter of those hymns works with that song. And if you're curious, I, uh, Amazing Grace is one of them that people have done in the past. Uh, I used the Love of God uh, recently. 
for that. I like to do stuff like that. False teachers like to do the opposite. They like to hijack the truth. And really that, that comes from Satan. So Peter, First Peter, and, and uh, Brother Phil talked about this last week a little bit, the differences between First and Second Peter. First Peter was talking about external persecution of the church. It's, it's really easy to spot. It's not easy to, to endure, but it's easy to spot. The church is, is, is persecuted. At the time, the church was being persecuted. It was state-sponsored persecution by the Roman Empire against the Christian church. And that's one of the tools of Satan. He, he will physically go after Christians uh, using bad men to attack Christians physically. But another tool of Satan is much more insidious is what Peter is talking about in chapter 2. And that's when he, would, he attacks the church from within. In the same manner, if you think about a lot, all of this that's talked about here, these false teachers, they're really following after the example that Satan, he's being, they're being used by Satan in the same manner in which he himself would attack something as important that Peter said here is, is the word of God. The first recorded words of scripture, in scripture, of Satan, are did God really say? Did God really say? He's questioning the word of God. You find him doing that. Questioning it. Or, when he tempted Jesus, misusing it. He quoted scripture. But he intentionally misused those scriptures to tempt he disguises himself as an angel of light. He is the father of lies. And he perverts, he seeks to pervert the word of God. Because he hates the word of God. And another thing he hates, we are, as the church, the bride of Christ. And Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for her. And if you don't think that that doesn't put the church in the crosshairs of someone like Satan? You're wrong. He absolutely wants to attack and destroy the bride of Christ. And again, one of the more insidious ways that he does that is by attacking the church from within with these false teachers. And Peter doesn't necessarily go into incredible detail in chapter 2 about what these destructive doctrines are per se, but he does talk about how to recognize them. This is what they look like. This is what false teachers look like. And just running through, uh, I have verses 10 through 17. Well, let's read that first. And I'm going to start in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like unnatural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, Speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. 
and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. For he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest. For whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever? Man, that's such a happy, happy passage. And to run through that, things that, that, that characteristics of these these false prophets are that they are defiant. And that's in tw- uh, chapter two, verses ten through twelve a. Uh, they're driven by instinct. It's twelve b. They're deceitful. Verse thirteen. They're debauched. Verse fourteen. And they're driven by greed. Verses 15 through 16. Or you can sum up the three characteristics of these men by the words pride, lust, and greed. And ultimately they are dissatisfying and they are doomed. And I, I, I want to actually, I, I, so I read this in the, whole, the New King James today, but I, I really liked uh, the way that the Holman Christian Standard Bible, uh, verse 10 says, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh. That is a characteristic of it. I've never heard the word pollution used in a positive way. Never. Not once. Pollution is introducing something that is not natural to the environment, is, is damaging to the environment. A good example would be dumping Toxic waste, if you will, in water, a water source. What happens to that clean water source when you do that? And you pollute it. That water is no longer safe to drink. Uh, Any life source that's in the water, fish would be a great example, uh, will potentially die. And if they don't die, I I really wouldn't recommend eating a fish that's from a polluted lake. Uh, If you pull it out and it's got three eyes, probably not a good sign. But pollution is unnatural. And the description here of these men is that they follow the polluting desires of the flesh. That's not a good thing to follow the flesh, the desires of the flesh. It will in the end, and I'll talk about that a little bit, uh, even on this earth, will destroy you or damage you. Tear you down, and if you continue in that way, and I, I'm not saying you collectively, I'm talking about the false teachers here, uh, but it's something we do need to guard against. But if, if they, these teachers, continue in that way unchecked, they will be destroyed, they will be uh, damaged beyond repair. And a, a characteristic of these men, in addition to walking according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness or the polluting desires of the flesh, is that uh, they despise authority. They despise authority, and, and that's tied also um, to verse 11. They're 
presumptuous, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are not or who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. And I don't know if, if this was, I, I, I don't recall if, if this was talked about last week, but if you'd like, go, go back and read Jude. There's a lot of parallels in Jude to, to this, this chapter in, in First Peter, Second Peter specifically. Um, talks about uh, angels and, and, and people like this who hate authority. And there's a lot of, I suppose people, people aren't exactly sure who these glorious ones are, who these dignitaries are. Uh, you read different translations and it will say different things. But at the end of the day, it's authority that, that they rail against, they despise authority. And if you talk, think about civil, civil authority, what is, what is civil authority put in place for? And it, I mean, is, is civil authority ordained by God? Does he put it in place intentionally? Government? Government is important. And why? It's because of sin. I mean, there are a lot of things that civil authority and government can do for a society. But one of the things that they do is ensure that man, man's natural desires and tendencies are checked. I can't do everything I want to. If I wanted Evan's property and I, he doesn't want to give it to me, I'm just going to take it. And I may kill him for it. Well, civil authority is, in, is, is put in place to ensure that I cannot do that. Or if I do, at least, there's a punishment for that. People who want to do their own thing, who want to live without uh, any sort of rules or, or, or fences on what they can do, would hate, would rail against authority. If you're talking about uh, civil authority again here, they would hate the fact that they can't necessarily do anything that they want to do. If you're talking about a spiritual authority, it could be the elders of a church. Um, and I want to do what I want to do in church. And obviously the people that are, should be, at least hopefully speaking out against this, would be the elders. And they would hate that. They would hate that people are calling them out on their behavior. And ultimately, we talk about who sets the authority on all of this. This is God himself. In reality, who they truly rail against the authority of is Jesus Christ and God the Father. They hate the restraints that are placed on them. They know they're there, and they hate them because they want to do what they want to do. And they, they, they hijack, they subvert the scriptures to defend what they want to do. And there are ways that you can do that. Satan has proved that himself. You can make things sound right using scripture wrongly. And, and, and other uh, people, Paul himself talked about uh, one of them, which our brother Phil talked about last week, that... Using grace to justify continuing poor behavior. I made it in the door. I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. And I'm not saying that once you're saved, you're not always saved. But using grace as a justification to continue in sin. His grace is sufficient. I can do whatever I want. And that was a teaching that crept in. And I guarantee you that's a teaching that continues today. How could a loving God condemn X, whatever it is, his grace is sufficient to cover it. He loves us. How, he, he loves us enough to cover that. But they hate the authority of God. And they do things that even the angels, these powerful beings, tremble or will not do. And they're akin to natural brute beasts. A brute beast 
is used to contrast in scriptures between someone who has reason, who uses reason. We have, as human beings, the ability to reason. Dumb brute beasts don't. They're driven by instinct. They do what feels right at the time. And that's a description of these people who think they're wise, think that they, they sound smart, but in the, in, in the end, in reality, the only thing they're looking to do is enjoy themselves, however that, that plays out. And not in a positive way. And the end state of, of these things, I just want to read you a couple sections here in one of the commentaries. Specifically, verse 10, that this then is the character of the false teacher as set out so far. They are dominated by lust. Their passions are given free sway with the result that they behave like animals. While the mental and spiritual sides of their humanity suffer atrophy. They are headstrong, rebellious against the will of God and reckless of the consequences. That's terrifying to be reckless of the consequences. These are eternal consequences. These aren't these aren't temporary. These are eternal consequences. They are contemptuous of other people, be they human or celestial. They are self-willed. The sensual man always is. For in the last analysis, self is all that matters to him. His hell is this, that his world contracts, until the only thing he has left is the self he has corrupted. And he ends with this, who can say that Second Peter is irrelevant to our generations? Do you think some of that stuff doesn't apply to people today? It absolutely does. You think people don't desire to go after whatever makes them happy, whatever pleases them? I think that's an apt description of this generation and, and the world today. And the second one he talked about, and this is a quote from Barclay, sensuality is self-destructive. The aim of the man who gives himself to such fleshly pleasures, or fleshly things is pleasure. And his tragedy is that in the end he loses even the pleasure For a while he may enjoy what he calls pleasure, but in the end he ruins his health, wrecks his constitution, destroys his mind and character, and begins his experience of hell while he is still on earth. That is the natural end state of being driven by instinct, of pursuing pleasure. They're deceitful. carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. They were deceitful in the church. They talk about those feasts. It's really the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the agape feasts. And they were deceitful in them and debauched during them. It's interesting that uh, verse 14, when it says, having eyes full of adultery, or literally, in my Bible it says literally an adulteress. What that, that seems to mean is, as a man who would follow this or be, be this, I, I can't look at another woman without thinking about them in a sexual way, or sexual manner. You've gone so far in the twisting of your mind that you cannot filter out that when you're viewing or looking at another woman. Whether they're a sister in the Lord, whether they're, however they're, they're related to you, a stranger or a sister in the Lord, you cannot view them that way. The only way you can view them is an object, basically. And I would say one of the one of the biggest problems for young men specifically, but men in general in today's society, is pornography. 
And there are studies out there. You know, I would say it's generally accepted in secular society. Pornography is. But there are definitely studies, even on the secular side, that, that show and illustrate how pornography warps your thinking. If you are a steady consumer of pornography, that will change the way that you think. It will literally reroute your brain. And I think that's, that is one of the, the things here, a characteristic of these false teachers, is that they're like that. And that's not something that we want to be like and we need to, to guard against. And it says that they entice unstable souls. That's a characteristic of the people that would fall prey to these people is they're unstable. And they have a heart trained. That's literally, they have, they have gone to a gym to train in these ways, to be covetous. And they're accursed. Peter does not pull punches in this, this, this chapter at all. They are accursed. They are under the curse of God. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam. You know, it's an interesting story. If you haven't read Numbers chapter 22 and on, um, it's, it is an interesting story. But Balaam actually shows up in the New Testament here in Second Peter. He shows up in Jude. And you hear him one last time referenced in Revelation chapter 2. When you talk about the churches, when John was writing to the churches. This is under the, the church in my Bible entitled the Compromising Church. That's interesting, the compromise, the compromising church. But I have a few things against you. This is verse 14 of chapter 2. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. They're driven by greed. Alensky wrote this about uh, Balaam. Balaam is a fearful example of a man who was a prophet, I put that in quotes, whom God told what not to do, whom God hindered in his wrongdoing by even letting a dumbass speak to him. Dumbass, sorry, speak to him. But who, in spite of everything, secretly clung to his love for what he thought he could get out of unrighteousness and so perished. That is a description of Balaam, and there are those, these false teachers, who follow that example. They seek to put a stumbling block in front of people because, and it doesn't have to be money. Greed can be for a lot of things, but greed in general is a driver, and it is ultimately dissatisfying. Proverbs, they talk about the leech. There are two, there are two things that they, two, it has two daughters, and they are give, give. And if you don't think that the more you have, the more you want, is not a true statement. And you're probably not a billionaire or a millionaire. And I'm not either, by the way. I just And all of these things, there, there is destruction even on the earth. If you think that being defiant of authority does not have consequences, ultimately, especially if you continue to realize them, that's, it does. There are consequences to that, and they can be on this earth. But defiant to the authority of the Lord, if they die... In that state, woe to them. Verse 17, well, they're ultimately dissatisfying. There are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest. There's a promise of water that is never delivered. There's a promise of sustenance that is never given. These false teachers promise things, but they never deliver on that promise. For whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever? 
If you've never read Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, just read it sometime. I'd recommend it. It's a little bit of that hellfire and brimstone that people don't necessarily like. But you want a good description of how terrifying it really is to die in your sins or to live in your sins unknowing that someday you could die. We have no idea when this mortal coil will end, when the cord will be cut, so to speak, and we will plunge into eternity. And if you do so without Christ, it is a terrifying thing. And these, these, depra- these false teachers in the church, Peter minces no words and says this, this is the end state of them. If they die in their sins, the blackness of darkness is reserved for them forever. There is no coming back from this. And I would say it's, it's almost worse to have been part of the church, to have been surrounded by the faith, to know the truth, to hear it every day, and to reject it. Because you loved the world and the pleasures that it gave you now, and you forsook that future end state. And you may have even thought you were saved. And I, I, I got to stop using you from the pulpit. That sounds bad. These false teachers may have actually thought that they were saved. There, there's a recorded scripture where they say, these men come at the end times and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? And his end state was to say, depart from me. I never knew you. How horrific an end. And I don't want to focus on, on that. That is the end state here of these people. But I think one of the reasons why Peter focuses so much on these people is because it's easy to be misled. It's easy to be, to be led astray by false teaching. And there are things that we can do to guard against that. A way to describe false teachers is really counterfeiters. They're counterfeits of the real deal. Uh, and if you go back, uh, I don't know if this is, pro- this is probably still true, um, but there are so many safeguards in place today on the $100 bill, let's say, for instance. But if you look at someone who, who looks for counterfeits, what do they do? Do they study the counterfeits? No, they study the real deal. So if you want to find a counterfeit dollar bill, you study the real dollar bill. So you can spot the counterfeit instantly. And I think that is what the, the reason behind the warnings here. And really to go back in, in, into chapter 1, where he talks about, uh, in verse 3, And his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who, is, who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the design, divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And the, and the charge to, to add these things to your life, for every reason giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. These are things that as Christians, as individual, individual Christians, you are charged, especially as the time grows short, to add to your lives. And if you do these things, and if you realize the divine power of God has given you everything that you need to fight against these, these false teachers, you want to strengthen your, yourself. You want to study the truth. 
and self-control is one of the one of the things that you need to add to your life. I think that that that's also something that First Peter talked about in his first first book, and that's a concept throughout Scripture: being self-controlled. Be self-controlled, or be sober, be vigilant, be self-controlled and alert. I think that's one of the ways that we can guard against this. And I think it is interesting to note I, that false teachers in the time of Peter probably interacted differently with the church in some respects than they do today. And the reason I say that is because of technology. Back in the day, someone would have to come into your church and actually start speaking and teaching in your church, potentially from the pulpit, or get up and say something at, at the meeting of the love feast, and by their behavior incorporated into that local fellowship, would corrupt it. But in today's day and age, you just have to turn on the TV. You just have to search Google. and You want to, you want to find something that probably fits your worldview, whether it's, it's scriptural or not, you can find it. And you can turn on the TV and... And I like to mock certain individuals I've, I've heard on the TV in some respect or shape or form. Um, but their teachings are destructive. And I, I, I could name quite a few people. I'm not going to do that. But understanding that false teachers interact with the church, I think, today differently because of technology. And we must guard against that. Be self-controlled and alert. Be like the Bereans. Peter talks about the importance of this word and how false teachers will use this to justify their behavior. They will misuse this, I should say, the scriptures to justify their behavior, or they will question it, question the authority of the scriptures. We should be like the Bereans, grounded in the word. We should study this to show ourselves approved. Second Timothy, a workman who need not be ashamed. For the scriptures is a, is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. That, that passage in Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against me. That, that is how we guard against these people who, who whether they intend to or not, by their very actions, are des- their very actions are designed to cause us to stumble and to be reminded that their end is doom and destruction. And that's not what we want. So be self-controlled and alert. Ground yourself in the Word of God. Memorize it. And lastly, First John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and I think these things encompass the entirety of what the false teachers are described as, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And a reminder that the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever.
Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warning that we have heard this morning to guard against false teachers and their doctrine, to not love the things of this world as they do and as is easy to do, that we should cast off the sin which so easily entangles and run with endurance the race that is set before us, Lord. To love you, not the world. To follow you and not the world. To add these things that are talked about in Second Peter chapter 1 to our lives. To ground ourselves in your word. We pray that you would just help us to do all these things, Lord. Help us to ground ourselves in your word and to learn and to love you more. We thank you for, once again, the gift of your son. We pray that you would just bless us as we go throughout this week. You would help us to live lives that are worthy of our calling. We pray all these things in your precious and holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen.